Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Joseph Webster's book, The Anthropology of Protestantism, takes readers deep into the lives of fishermen in Gamry, a village perched above the sea in northeastern Scotland. It's a place of great wealth and also poverty, a place of staunch Protestantism among many of the older people and reckless abandon or religious unconcern among the young and incomers, that is, new arrivals in the village. By tracing the millennialist faith of the villagers, many Presbyterian and Brethren churches, this careful ethnography calls into question assumptions about the decline of religion in modern societies. It asks, how do the fishermen of Gamry experience life as both modern and enchanted? I'm pleased to welcome Joe Webster to NBIR to discuss this question and many more. Hello and welcome. Hi there, how are you doing? Good, good. So from the outset of the book, you discuss how in some ways you were an outsider in the context you were studying. How did you come to study Scottish Protestantism and Gamry in particular? Okay, so um, I guess with uh, a lot of academics, the way my uh, research project developed was by doing something quite small and then it uh, snowballing from project to project. And suddenly I find my, found myself uh, really focusing on quite a specific topic. So um, as an undergraduate, I uh, studied sociology and anthropology and um, did my dissertation in anthropology. And my uh, work there was on a little Protestant uh, community in uh, Lewis on the Outer Hebrides, looking at Sabbath observance, what these very strict Calvinists did and didn't do on a Sunday. Um, and then from that, I became interested in uh, really very conservative Protestantism in Scotland. And my PhD supervisor, Michael Rosie, asked me, have you ever heard of Gardenstown? And I said I hadn't. Gardenstown is the kind of official name of Gamery, the village where I did my research. And he had heard of the village through um, actually the newspapers because uh, a story had hit the press. A new church had asked for planning permission uh, to have a new uh, building in the village. And planning permission was refused on the basis that, that there were already too many churches in the village. So this hit the papers. Um, Michael, my supervisor, picked it up and I started visiting uh, the village. And really quickly, I figured out that this was going to be a fascinating place to do uh, my doctoral work. Uh, so uh, from then on in, I began to make plans and uh, wrote a proposal for uh, for the work. So tell us a bit about Gamery. I realized I pronounced it incorrectly before, right? I was saying Gamery. Tell us a bit about Gamery. It's so evocative in the text. Where is it? Who lives there? There are a lot of churches. What, what, are, the right. people's, what are the people's lives like? Sure. So um, it is a very intriguing place. It's um, in the um, northeast corner of uh, Scotland, um, about uh, an hour um, and a half north of Aberdeen. Um, It's dominated by uh, the fishing industry. Um, So it's a village of uh, 700 people with 
six churches, uh, which is supposedly the highest number of churches per head of population anywhere in Scotland. But because of its very strong uh, fishing industry, um, it also reputedly has the highest number of millionaires per head of population. So it's famous for its religion and it's uh, famous for its fishing industry. Um, to be a bit more specific, the religion is a millenarian version of Protestantism dominated by uh, the Plymouth Brethren. They're a, uh, a dispensationalist group that uh, invented uh, the theology of the rapture, where at the end of time, all the Christians will immediately vanish from the face of the earth and an apocalyptic end time scenario will unfold. Um, and then with the fishing industry, it was dominated by um, big deep sea prawn trawlers. And because uh, for various reasons, the price of prawns went through the roof. Uh, so um, lots of men made huge amounts of money through uh, the fisheries. So I, I definitely want to come back to the end times. We haven't we haven't reached the end of the end times. No, words. Um, but but I did want to ask you, because you mentioned in the book that there are, of course, a lot of other people who live in Gamry as well. Sure. Um, so who who are some of the other people? Sure. So the um, population of the village in local imaginings was really divided into uh, locals and incomers. So locals were understood to be those people who had been uh, born and brought up in the village um, and incomers were uh, a slightly more uh, diverse group. So incomers could mean uh, people from Scotland who were not from the village, whether that was from the village next door or from, uh, you know, Edinburgh or Glasgow or somewhere quite different. Um, and also you had uh, people from England moving into the village. These were referred to as English incomers and they uh, generally were, um, holiday homeowners. So they would be living in the village for a few months a year, uh, would buy the kind of small traditional fisher cottages uh, at great expense. And they were really there for the natural beauty of uh, the village, for the um, laid back, slow lifestyle that, that they thought they uh, would uh, find there. Um, there were also um, divisions within the local population. So it wasn't uh, the case that the um, local Gamery folk were uh, all uh, the same, not at all. So there would be um, strong divides by age, as you mentioned in the introduction. So young people really didn't have much interest in the churches. Older people uh, certainly did. Um, and by virtue of having six churches uh, in the village, there was also a lot of religious diversity. So the local population, the church going population was divided six times over four brethren churches and uh, two Presbyterian churches. So a lot of variation by uh, religious background, by age, by income, and to a certain extent also by nationality. Right. And as you note in the book that although maybe for outsiders, closed brethren, open brethren, it all sounds awfully similar. But for them, of course, I mean, these are very different churches. So there's the need to have that many churches, even in such a small space. Each one is doing something slightly different. Yeah, that's very true. So the um, history of the um, religion in the village was essentially the history of schism. So uh, the um, fact that there were four slightly different types of brethrenism in a village of 700 people really emerged 
through um, various uh, breakaway groups leaving uh, the um, established Brethren Fellowships and, and setting up their own meeting. Um, the open and closed Brethren distinction is a, is a historical one that, that still persists today, but there were also um, splits within both the open and the closed uh, side of uh, the movement. Um, sometimes people would comment to me that that was um, just as much about personality clashes as it was about doctrinal disagreements. And certainly in terms of doctrine, the Brethren churches and also actually the Presbyterian churches were uh, were very similar. They had much more in common theologically uh, than, um, you know, what divided them, I suppose. So I, I started by mentioning that in some ways you were an insider to the place that you were studying. In some ways you weren't, of course. What was sure. your life like in the village? How did people respond to you? I mean... Here you are, a young guy showing up and wanting to go to church all the time at every yeah, church. <laughs> different, yeah. So, um, my, absolutely, my um, my status, my identity within the village was uh, ambiguous, to uh, say the least. So, um, I uh, was open about the fact that I'm a practicing Christian, and that um, gave me a certain... Uh, level of access uh, initially, at least, it meant that the two Presbyterian churches were uh, willing to consider my request to move into the village and do some research. Although at that time, when I was living in Scotland, I was uh, attending a Free Church of Scotland, which wasn't represented uh, within uh, the village. So, you know, some people acknowledged and treated me as if I was a Christian, but but others certainly didn't. The um, way in which someone's faith background is assessed within the brethren would, would be really quite particular. So there wouldn't be uh, as much sense of a kind of a broader Christian community. They would draw the, the circle around who was and wasn't deemed to be a Christian in, in quite specific uh, ways. Um, so that left me in many respects, I think probably more respects than being an outsider, uh, or rather being an insider. It, it, it really did leave me uh, as as an outsider. I, I had no uh, background or connection to the brethren at all. Um, and I suppose the other thing was that I, uh, when I moved there, knew absolutely nothing about fishing. So um, I'd never uh, been at sea. I'd certainly never worked on a trawler. So uh, that status of being uh, someone who had no connection to uh, a life at sea absolutely marked me out as someone very different. And you talk a bit about how the folks in Gamry really divide their world up into the farmers and the fishermen, right? And the farmers are sort of a, a problematic, less moral category, perhaps. I don't know where academics fit in that dichotomy, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> probably on the farming side. So one of the things that, that you describe in um, Gamery is this triple pinch, as you call it, mm -hmm. pressures that are economic, demographic, eschatological as well. <laughs> so getting back to the end times. In brief, what are those pinches? So uh, I try and describe in the book the way in which uh, Gardenston was a, a place that was going through really quite rapid change. So the demographic uh, pinch was something that's uh, going on elsewhere uh, in Scotland and in Northern Europe, which was essentially a process of uh, out-migration 
Um, so younger people were leaving um, the village to find work in uh, bigger towns. But the reason this was particularly uh, painful for uh, Gamery as a place was that that meant that local churches and brethren fellowships were rapidly losing the uh, human resources that they uh, previously had. So young people were uh, spending less and less time uh, at church, uh, more and more time at sea. Uh, and that's if they were living in the village at all. Many of them moved to uh, Fraserburgh, which was the local uh, large fishing port. Uh, and, and really, um, their connection to the village was greatly reduced as a result. The uh, economic uh, pinch uh, was connected to that in a sense. Um, as young people moved away, the economic base of the village had become weaker. But there was also a more general sense that the fishing industry was in crisis. So the way in which uh, European Union regulation was putting the local fishing industry under pressure meant that more and more fishing crews were going bankrupt and those few successful uh, skippers and crews that managed to uh, remain within the industry were becoming more and more wealthy. So what you were seeing was a an increasing polarization. Those who were struggling within the fishing industry generally went bankrupt, and those who were doing well uh, generally became extremely wealthy and, and actually more economically uh, dominant. There was also, I suppose, within the economic pinch, the fact that as uh, people, particularly young, economically active people, moved away, that meant that the support that the churches uh, could expect was uh, going down. So people weren't tithing uh, in the same way that they were in the past. That's more relevant for the Presbyterian churches, but also for the Brethren churches, that the financial support base within Brethren fellowships was going down because young people were moving away. And then the, the third one that I try and talk about was the eschatological pinch. And I suppose... What I try and describe there is the fact that not only uh, was Gamery potentially facing its kind of final days demographically, and not only was the fishing industry facing its final days economically, but local people, local Christians particularly, were very concerned about the fact that they believed that the village and uh, the world was facing its own end, its own kind of apocalyptic end. And this was drawn uh, from their theology of uh, the end times, their dispensationalist view that um, defined the present as the last of the last days. So time was very short for particularly my elderly Christian informants. They were desperately trying to uh, share their born-again faith with young people within the village and were finding very little success in, in doing so. And they were anxiously aware from their perspective, that because the world was soon to end, um, as they described it to me, that uh, the day of salvation, the kind of window of time for uh, becoming born again, from their perspective, was rapidly closing. So uh, in a very literal sense, they uh, felt the village to be facing its own apocalyptic end. Of course, those listeners who 
work on Christianity and especially dispensationalist Christians, this will all sound awfully familiar. But for those who don't, maybe we can just clarify. So, mm-hmm. so one thing that they're concerned about are individuals, including their own kin, younger folks, being saved, so being born again and therefore on the, the right side of, of God, as it were. Um, yes. And the other thing that they're concerned about is this impending apocalyptic end. What does that apocalypse look like? What kinds of signs are they looking for? What sorts of things are showing them that it is yeah. indeed the end times? So one of the key ways in which local people uh, indexed the fact that they were living in the last of the last days was by searching for what they called signs of the times or signs of the end times. And they were looking for little pieces of uh, evidence which to them confirmed biblical prophecy. So they were fascinated by uh, Old Testament and New Testament uh, biblical prophecy. But what they saw in their own lives, in their own present day, um, was, from their view, a literal fulfillment of these biblical prophecies within their own day and within their own village. So one of the key signs, unsurprisingly, was the health and state of the fishing industry. So they regarded the collapse of the fisheries and particularly the intervention and regulation of the fishing industry by the European Union as an, a very clear sign of the end times. So they regarded uh, the European Union as the Antichrist, as a uh, kind of demonic political entity that was seeking to um, hastened the end of the world by uh, attacking the Scottish fishing industry. And without getting into too many of the details, the uh, local imagination here was that uh, the devil was seeking to impose a kind of world-ending global famine upon the planet. And one of the ways that that world-ending famine would occur would be through uh, crushing the uh, fishing industry. Having said that, there were many, many other signs in everyday life that they pointed towards that uh, to them represented uh, the end of the world. So during my field work, there was a a political scandal in um, the British uh, press about members of parliament's expenses. So um, the political world was very much drawn into this, the fact that politicians were behaving uh, improperly financially from their point of view was uh, was an evidence of this. But even more locally, a higher divorce rate, um, the fact that young people were no longer interested in attending uh, church, uh, the arrival of uh, lots of people into the village who uh, weren't uh, able or willing to live their lives uh, in ways that uh, conformed to uh, moral expectation. All of these things were seen as evidences of the end of the world. And also natural signs, so uh, unusually harsh winters locally was seen as a sign, but so were uh, earthquakes and uh, volcano eruptions and uh, all of the um, kinds of things that my informants would be reading uh, in the newspapers, as well as circulating among themselves through village gossip. All of these things were seen as uh, material and symbolic signs that the end of the world was soon to occur. So you've been uh, talking a little bit about the EU. Uh, From the EU's perspective, what were they doing in terms of the Scottish fishing industry? So do you mean... um, 
What, well, did you understand itself to be doing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, okay. presumably not acting on behalf of the devil to crush no. the Scottish fishing industry to cause a worldwide famine leading to the apocalypse. <laughs> what was the EU, um, what kinds of regulations had they sure. been instituting in the time that you were in the village? The European Union saw itself as managing fisheries in as sustainable a way as they could. And the uh, regulations were fairly uh, widespread. One of the key uh, regulations was the quota system. So they legislated on how much uh, fish could be landed. And that was also done uh, by species, obviously. So, uh, for instance, uh, the quota on cod was very, very small because uh, cod was a threatened species. But as well as the quota system, there were also new pieces of legislation being introduced, things like the days at sea system, which meant that fishermen could only be at sea for a certain number uh, of days uh, a year. There were also regulations on the mechanics of fishing, so the size of net mesh was um, a key issue and um, net mesh had to be big enough to avoid catching very juvenile species. And this was an attempt to um, allow fish to uh, reproduce. But possibly most controversially, there was also um, market intervention. So minimum prices were set for uh, species at market. And if fish at market did not make its minimum price, uh, those fish would be uh, sprayed with red dye and would be marked as withdrawn and uh, would be essentially turned into either pet food or fertilizer. So the um, management of uh, fisheries was very widespread. I should also mention that one of the unintended consequences of the uh, quota system was that where fishing trawlers caught large quantities of a certain species without having the required license, that catch would need to be dumped back to sea because they didn't have the license uh, to sell it. Now, when fish comes uh, up out of a trawler's uh, net, it's perfectly uh, fresh fish, but it's all dead because the way the fish are compacted into the back of the net means that generally the fish uh, are drowned. So fishermen were in a position where they were dumping huge quantities of fresh, dead, but very valuable fish uh, back into the sea because they didn't have the required license. And they regarded this as um, a sign, again, that um, the uh, quota system was was really not what it appeared to be. It wasn't about sustainability because they saw this problem of throwbacks as environmentally very unsustainable but um to them it revealed a kind of darker motive within uh the european union right and this sort of control from above i guess is what's really what they're really indexing there as you said absolutely yeah the sense of um being powerless to govern your own uh industry in the way that you would see fit right so I wanted to step back to a theoretical question that arises in your text, the concept of belief. So mm-hmm. uh, belief is an important, often contested category in the anthropology of religion and also in religious studies. How do yeah. you come to define belief over the course of your study? So it's a, it's a really interesting question and one that I suppose, brings the anthropology of religion, as you've already said, into conversation with all sorts of other disciplines, religious studies, theology, uh, history. Um, I I try, I suppose, to 
walk the line between uh, belief as a series of um, intellectual propositions, uh, belief being things that we say we agree with, versus belief as uh, a kind of lived out practice. So belief is not ju- just what we think in our heads. It's not just those things that we assent to, but it's also uh, the way in which we live our lives. So belief is also about how we catch fish or uh, the way in which we uh, preach um, or how we uh, plead with our grandchildren about their desperate need to come to uh, born again salvation. So belief is just as much an embodied act of, of doing um, than it is a kind of a cognitive process of uh, stating that something uh, is true. That'll sound familiar to listeners also who are aware of the trajectory and anthropology of Christianity, but you do a careful job, and and I think it could be useful for other listeners here, you do a careful job at sort of talking about the development of anthropology of Christianity Mm. um, as something that maybe for anthropologists will sound a little odd, an anthropology of Christianity. Christianity is not really a, a religion that was often on the uh, menu, as it were, for sure. anthropology of religion. Yeah. So, so how, did, how does anthropology of Christianity view some of these issues? Um, how does it develop? Uh, mm-hmm. What does your book do in terms of that conversation? Yeah. Well, I mean, what I try and do is I try and build on uh, some of the work by people like uh, Joel Robbins and Fenella Cannell, who were influential um, in forming this subdiscipline, the anthropology of Christianity. And part of what those two scholars point out, uh, other people have pointed out as well, is that anthropology has always had a rather awkward relationship with Christianity. And the reason they have that awkward relationship with Christianity as, as an ethnographic fact is because they have a rather awkward relationship with theology. And with the um, uh, kind of Christian um, prehistory of anthropology as a discipline. So, uh, you know, to put it rather bluntly, many um, anthropologists, uh, when the discipline uh, was uh, first getting going about 100 years ago, were deeply kind of connected uh, to and dependent upon missionaries for their access to the field. Not only that, but as well as spending a lot of time with missionaries and having their access um, provided by missionaries, they saw themselves as anthropologists as undertaking a a very different um, intellectual pursuit. So rather than being involved in the metaphysics of Christian belief, they saw themselves as essentially engaging in um, a kind of social scientific analysis of um, culture and society. So, Anthropology had this uh, rather tense and difficult relationship with Christianity. It saw it at the same time as both rather kind of uh, dull and well-known, right? It was the uh, religion of home, the religion of the West. But at the same time, they saw it as as rather threatening because it was not only engaging in theological metaphysics rather than empirical anthropology, but... Um, but it was a discipline uh, that was kind of deeply indebted to theology, both in terms of its access to the field and actually in terms of many of the kind of philosophical underpinnings of the discipline. 
So I, I suppose what um, the anthropology of Christianity today is trying to do is trying to not only uh, kind of recognize that theological prehistory of anthropology, but it's it's also trying to kind of sidestep some of that baggage and and then to proceed in its own aim, I suppose, of conducting more thoroughly ethnographic uh, studies of this religion, which um, up until maybe 20 years ago was very much a minority interest within the discipline. So the anthropology of Christianity is really, I think, trying to make up for uh, for lost time because of because of this rather awkward history that it has with um, theology and Christian missionaries in particular. I think that this book certainly is a great example of that since, I mean, it really is in some ways a very classic anthropology. It's a village ethnography in certain ways, um, but looking at a subject that until recently would have been quite taboo (laughs) within anthropology of religion. So uh, in chapter four, um, you take up the question about testimony. You're using the example of a fisherman. He's 65 years old named Alistair, or at least that's the name that that you give him. That's right. Um, what kinds of forms does testimony take? You've mentioned it a little bit already in our conversation, but it's so mm-hmm. important to yeah. the people in Gamery. Um, what kinds of forms does it take? Uh, how does your reading of these kinds of testimonies build on other work on Protestant testimony and sincere words that's been coming out of anthropology of Christianity? Testimony is essentially a local uh, word. I mean, it's, it's used obviously in, in other um, branches of, of Christianity globally. But uh, locally, what testimony meant was a, um, a kind of born-again conversion uh, narrative. So it was uh, the way in which local Christians retold their own story of how they became born again. So what was particularly interesting about testimony was the way in which uh, these highly uh, emotional performances, uh, weeping, admitting to personal dependence, describing your love for Jesus, the way in which those emotionally charged performances played against and um, undermined and in some senses contradicted local expectations about what it meant to be a properly masculine fisherman. So the kind of uh, stereotype of a masculine fisherman would be very strong, very independent, very self Uh, controlled. And what I came to realize as I listened to dozens of these testimonies was that local men were developing new ways of uh, expressing uh, their emotions uh, in ways that undermined local expectations about the kind of hyper-masculine fishermen. But then they didn't um, simply uh, embrace local models of uh, femininity and um, childlike dependence here being feminine and being childlike was defined by uh, dependence uh, and weakness. Those were the local models. So not only did masculine fishermen embrace those and kind of reinvent them as uh, tropes of kind of real Christian masculinity, but they also uh, described to me the way in which learning those new uh, emotional forms allowed them not only to be a better Christian, but also a better uh, husband and a better father. So um, 
these um, emotional articulations really had profound effects on the way in which uh, men described uh, their home life, but also uh, the kinds of uh, emotions they could uh, express within uh, religious settings. When you're talking about emotion here, I mean, you really mean it. Alistair is breaking down crying at different points during his testimony that he's describing. Yeah, Yeah, and that would be very unusual for um, a older man to weep in front of a younger man. That would be something that just would not happen in other tropes of um, social life. So this was this was quite an unusual, quite a different form of emotional expression. It was notable not only because it happened in front of me as as a younger uh, male, but also because these emotional uh, performances would be conducted often at the front of church, in front of maybe 50 or 100 or 150 people. So they were public performances very often, as well as performances that I myself was collecting as uh, as an anthropologist. And I suppose when I was writing about this, when I was trying to pick it apart anthropologically, what struck me was the way in which these testimonies, although they felt highly conventional, the way that they were kind of uh, made to measure tropes of uh, born-again conversion that we see certainly in American evangelicalism, although it felt very familiar in that context, I suppose what I try and say in the book is that 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 familiarity, that uh, conventional nature didn't undermine the fact that these were still very sincere and very personal emotional expression. So I, I really try and say that um, the kind of outward form was uh, not indicative of the fact that um, it was somehow a kind of insincere emotional performance. This certainly wasn't just crocodile tears, if I can put it like that, despite the fact that it was a, a well-rehearsed local narrative and also a narrative that um, had all sorts of resonances with uh, global evangelicalism uh, worldwide. So in, in that sense, you're building on, um, and you mentioned this in the text, you're building on, for example, Stromberg's idea of canonical language um, even though the language sounds similar in different contexts, it's nevertheless a very real experience for those who are expressing it. Um, in what other ways did you were you either surprised or did you find that um, listening to these testimonies confirmed for you what you'd already been reading in the literature on Protestantism? Gosh, that's a that's a difficult question. I mean, I, I suppose what it what it confirmed was the fact that although Um, communities have all sorts of complex ways of making sense of who they are uh, as individuals. Uh, The fact that these tropes were shared, um, you know, within the community circulated um, within churches really meant that um, this was the community's way of making sense of who it was as individuals, but also collectively. I mean, the church would never be busier than on a night when um, testimony was, you know, the key subject of the service. So local people were fascinated by these uh, performances, by these uh, personal testimonies, and it really did shape the way people thought about themselves, the way they thought about their families, and ultimately the way they thought about the entire uh, Christian community. Mm. One of my favorite chapters, um, and we really have to, we have to get back to the fishing boats. <laughs> you mentioned them before. One of my favorite sure. chapters in the book is where you talk about going out on these excursions 
for uh, Bonnie Prawn, which I cannot say in the proper <laughs> in the proper North Scotch accent. But anyway, yeah. maybe I liked it so much because I'm the kind of person who gets nauseous even in proximity to waves, let alone okay. on them. Yeah. So I definitely appreciated your recollections of getting your sea legs. So over the course of the journeys, you were also party to sort of a constant round of witnessing. We've been talking about Mm -hmm. testimony, but there's also this this, um, witnessing that you're talking about as Christian and non-Christian sailors encountered each other. Uh, What was that like? What was life like at sea for you, for the Christian sailors around you? I mean, so going going out to sea for for my first time was uh, an, obviously an unforgettable experience. I was trying to get onto the boat for about a year before I managed to uh, build up uh, relationships in a way that would allow skippers to trust me enough to let them uh, to let me on board. So that that was a bit of a milestone for uh, the field work. I went to sea for uh, two different trips during my last uh, winter in the field. And I suppose it gave me a completely new insight about what it meant to live in this community because I previously had only seen the community at religion on land. And now I was seeing uh, the community at sea. So uh, the two boats I went out on were both run by uh, Christian skippers. One was a Brethren man, one was a uh, local Presbyterian man. And I went on these boats specifically because of that uh, reason. So they organized their working week in quite an unusual way. They would only be at sea for uh, six days at a time to ensure that they were on board um, or rather uh, on land uh, on Sunday for uh, church worship. But not only um, that, but when I was actually on the boat, it was, it was an astonishing experience. I mean, I, I was taking anti-sickness tablets uh, nonstop and managed to not be sick for the first trip and then got a bit overconfident the second trip and went to sea on a full stomach uh, against uh, advice and ended up being violently sick for the first uh, night of the second trip. Um, So there was definitely that embodied experience of learning how to walk again, essentially learning how to walk around the space, not fall over, not bash your limbs off the uh, walls as the boat lurched uh, left and right. And uh, the other kind of very visceral experience was the work. Uh, So I was um, uh, paid as a trainee uh, deckhand and was working alongside the men uh, obviously much slower than uh, they were, but um, we worked 100 hours in six days. That would be a pretty standard working schedule. So you're fishing around the clock, you're uh, hauling the nets um, every four or five hours and then processing the catch uh, as it comes in. And that that kind of uh, labor standing along a long steel tray, processing the catch for hours and hours on end was really the experience that uh, defined for me anyway, uh, being at sea, because when you were uh, standing along this long steel tray, processing the hundreds of thousands of prawns that have been brought on board, the only thing you could do to pass the time was talk, essentially. And it was that that talk, it was that discussion that opened up all sorts of fascinating insights into what it meant to be um, not only a, a Christian fisherman, but to be a Christian fisherman working amongst a crew who very often would would explicitly say that they were were absolutely not born again Christians and, and had very little time or interest or sympathy for Christian things. 
So how did that, how did some of those conversations play out? So one of the um, key um, uh, kind of narrative devices that I, I picked up on endlessly was this process of witness and counter witness. So uh, Christian fishermen would see it as their uh, duty, as their responsibility to try and talk about spiritual things, to uh, share their faith, not only through uh, testimony by, again, retelling their story of born again conversion, but also a process where they would directly challenge the uh, non-Christian crew. So they would ask them questions about their moral life, about church attendance, about spiritual beliefs. Um, And it would often feel like a bit of uh, a kind of uncomfortable interrogation. What was interesting was that the uh, so-called unsaved crew, the the non-Christian crew, would really push back and would um, engage in all sorts of uh, what I call counter witness. So they would talk about um, sexual conquest and uh, drunkenness and bar fights and all of the um, kind of social and moral and ethical behaviors that they knew would really rile and upset uh, the Christian crew. Not only that, but there would be all sorts of debates about uh, evolution and creationism and uh, abortion and um, uh, you know, sexuality, and it would just be this kind of endless verbal jousting, the Christians witnessing and the non-Christian crew pushing back with their, uh, you know, stories of uh, drunken exploits and uh, all of their um, kind of counter uh, beliefs about um, evolution and so on. Did you see the same sort of verbal jousting? I love that that phrase you just used. Did you see the same sort of jousting on land, or was this something that was really prominent at sea? It's an interesting question. I, I didn't actually see it very often on land, and I think uh, the reason why it was so obviously present in um, kind of along the tray when we were working on the boats was that what was going on here was a kind of fairly unique um, kind of enforced sociality where everyone was working within very, very close quarters. You would be uh, working, you know, a hundred hours across uh, only six days, seeing the same five or six faces hour after hour. And um, much of the uh, discussion, um, both uh, kind of Christian and non-Christian, was often played out in the most extreme terms, often, I think, to uh, try and make the time pass more quickly. So this was something that uh, non-Christian fishermen would would admit to me more readily when they were, you know, describing uh, all sorts of um, behaviors that would make uh, most uh, grown men and women blush. Um, You know, they they did so um, essentially to to try and kill time, to try and make the whole experience of uh, being at sea less uh, tedious. But um, it also clearly then had this kind of added dynamic of being voiced within a situation, within a context where there was a whole other kind of counter uh, series of expectations about, uh, you know, good, clean Christian living. So these two extremes were constantly um, knocking against each other with, with fairly profound effects. We already talked a bit about eschatology, the end of the world. 
In what ways were GameRick's mapping that eschatology onto world politics? Talked a little about the EU already. You mentioned in the book Israel. So what kinds of headlines are they scanning? Um, How are they thinking about politics? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that the brethren, um, certainly locally, the, the dominant trend across all four of the Brethren Fellowships was to um, to not vote as a matter of conscience. So they didn't participate in party politics because they saw politics as uh, essentially a kind of demonic realm, very similar to the way in which they thought about the European Union. The flip side of that was the fact that as well as seeing politics as a demonic realm, they were also fascinated by political processes and um, were very keen to stay as informed as they could about uh, global world politics. And one of the spheres that they were most interested in was um, Israel, particularly the, the state of Israel. And this emerged from their commitment to Christian Zionism. And in part, that was because uh, many of my informants were also avid consumers of Christian television, particularly God TV, which was a British broadcaster. But they also were uh, fascinated by uh, North American Christian uh, broadcasting as well. And as a result, um, local Christians had built up a very strong um, uh, fascination for the state of Israel, and they would um, closely watch Israel as another uh, source of signs of the end times. I, mean, I remember going to one uh, Christian Zionist convention with a number of key informants, and they were avidly uh, praying for the electoral success of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, they were praying about the drought in Israel. They were praying about uh, uh, Palestinian uh, land claims and uh, asking God to uh, thwart these land claims as uh, a way of maintaining the um, integrity of uh, the state of Israel's land borders. So um, these were uh, kind of live political issues that were being played out um, all the time. And um, it was it was made all the more intriguing because uh, generally my informants were, were kind of deeply suspicious of and skeptical about uh, party politics. So this um, fascination with, with Israel was one way in which they could uh, engage in um, modern political life, but but almost by by proxy through through prayer, through uh, reading newspapers, through attending these Christian Zionist uh, conferences. The other thing I should probably mention was they were um, uh, supporting a um, very interesting fundraising campaign at the time led by uh, God TV. This was a a campaign called the Million Trees campaign, and they were um, providing money to this campaign in order to plant uh, trees in the Negev uh, desert. And this was uh, pitched by God TV and embraced by my own informants as a way of uh, fulfilling a particular uh, prophecy in Isaiah about making the desert bloom. So they, um, as well as watching uh, Israeli politics, were uh, kind of practically and financially involved in um, trying to bring about a kind of change in um, this eschatological calendar by uh, fulfilling this biblical prophecy that the desert would bloom and and thereby 
you know, accelerating uh, the end times and uh, preparing uh, the the state of Israel for Jesus's soon return. That's that's really how they described it to me. It's a fascinating and really subtle portrait of people who are both outside of politics, I mean, actually abstaining from voting, and yet in other ways deeply immersed in what we would think of as contemporary politics as well. It's it's a fantastic example of, I think, how, how difficult it is to generalize about what this kind of faith or belief as it's lived looks like. Yeah. So I wanted to end by pulling back to what in some sense is the book's big claim, um, how we can conceptualize this sort of staunch faith within Mm -hmm. the context of modernity. Because, of course, you you don't want to pull these Scottish fishermen out of their modern context. I mean, they live in the contemporary now. One of the primary ways that you describe it relies on the idea of Eucharistic consubstantiation. Yes. Can you walk through what, what you mean by that? Yeah, so this is um, the bit of the book where um, I suppose I, I suspect I, I lose many readers. It gets a little bit dense towards the Except end. Except me. I got very excited by it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very generous of you. Thank Consubstantiation. You. That's Fantastic. Right. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what I try and do is I use this term, uh, consubstantiation, which is a, a particular view of the Eucharist, whereby um, uh, the uh, body and uh, blood of Christ is uh, believed to be um, uh, materially present, but without uh, changing its outward form. So essentially what consubstantiation does is it tries to, uh, s- some people, I suppose critics would, would possibly say it's a bit of a compromise between a purely symbolic uh, view of uh, communion uh, and uh, a Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. So it basically says that there is a real presence of uh, the body and blood of Christ within the uh, bread and the wine, but it, but it's, its real presence is uh, not such that it uh, changes the kind of uh, outward essence of uh, the uh, entity. So it's both just bread and wine, but also the body and blood of Christ. And what I try and say in the local context is that whilst uh, brethren and Presbyterian Christians locally would absolutely reject that view of of the Eucharist, of communion or, or breaking bread, as they would put it, because they would absolutely um, commit to um, the breaking of bread as a purely symbolic act. What I what I try and say rather is that uh, consubstantiation describes precisely what they encounter within their understanding of uh, scripture. So they would view scripture as both, uh, you know, a material bound uh, book, a collection of pages, um, but also uh, the kind of living inspired uh, breath of God. People would talk about the fact that the the Bible is still warm with the breath of God. So they had a very uh, elevated view of the scriptures. Often uh, local Christians would, would kind of, rather uh, playfully, but also in some senses quite seriously, redefine the Trinity as uh, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. So uh, to kind of try and come to the point here, I suppose what I what I do in the book is I, I try and say that we can use this view of uh, constant consubstantiation as a way to um, read not only their view of scripture, but also their view of all of material life. So 
to take an example, um, the um, nets with which they use to uh, harvest prawns from the sea are not only just uh, kind of material fishing nets, but um, they are also a uh, demonic uh, index of the uh, end of the world because uh, net mesh sizing is materially defined by uh, European Union uh, regulation. Um, so we can look at any object, whether it's the Bible, whether it's uh, fishing nets or or fishing boats or, um, you know, evidences of, um, you know, uh, drunkenness um, on, on the streets, you know, empty beer bottles uh, could be, you know, a sign not only of, um, uh, just a bottle lying on the street, but also this real index of uh, demonic attack. The same, interestingly, was uh, the case for uh, divine uh, evidences of uh, providence and God's presence. So uh, there's a, a story in the book about uh, my landlady um, having her uh, washing machine broken down and then someone stepping in to provide her with a brand new uh, washing machine, even though uh, they didn't know at the time that she needed one. So the washing machine was both just a washing machine, but also a kind of material sign and index of, of God's divine providence. Right. So it's that both and quality that, that you're tracking there that we can also see in, in this notion of consubstantiation, right? That bread is both bread and also the body of Christ. Exactly. Yeah. And I think what that does is it, it really forces us to rethink how we understand uh, modernity. Because what it what it really does is it, it basically says that modernity is uh, not just this kind of full and unequivocal uh, disenchantment that many people, I think, wrongly read into uh, Weber. But what we see is a much more complicated process of uh, what uh, Weber refers to as the old gods rising again within modernity. So things like uh, sexuality and uh, the glory of death in uh, war and uh, even uh, things like uh, scientific discovery can, in some ways, uh, reassert themselves. Uh, he also talks about uh, the aesthetics of art, that these forms of modern life can reassert themselves as um, deeply enchanted forms of uh, social life. And yet they crucially exist within uh, the modern world, within modernity. So modernity itself is both uh, this highly rational, technical uh, form of uh, life and governance, but it's also um, kind of buzzing with uh, the magic of um, the uh, soonness and nearness, the kind of imminence with an I and imminence with an A, the, the presence of both God and the devil. On that note, God and the devil, what are you working on now? Any more fish in your future? Well, so I am uh, taking a break at the moment from uh, studying uh, the Brethren communities of Northeast Scotland. And for the last two years, I have been doing a new piece of ethnography on uh, the Orange Order in uh, Scotland, particularly in the Central Belt. So looking at a different part, looking mostly at uh, Glasgow and a little town called Airdrie. For those uh, who don't know, the Orange Order is a Protestant uh, marching fraternity. It's, it's quite similar in structure to the Freemasons. It would describe itself in some senses as a secret uh, society, um, but it's also 
got a, a, a rather um, unsympathetic um, public image as being highly sectarian. So it is a kind of ultra Protestant, and some would say a highly uh, anti-Catholic uh, organization. And what the study uh, is trying to do, and I'm currently trying to write this up as a book, is it, it's it's trying to make sense of a very very different version of Protestantism, a, a version of Protestantism in Scotland that is um, highly political, that views being a Protestant as uh, deeply wedded to a certain view of uh, Britishness and a certain view of being committed to uh, the kind of political. Uh, integrity of the United Kingdom. So um, what's exciting about doing uh, this particular research project at this particular time is, of course, the huge constitutional changes that might well be coming to Scotland with the independence referendum. And as the constitutional arrangement within uh, Britain potentially goes under huge change, the Orange Order uh, as a kind of unionist pro-British uh, Protestant fraternity is is really trying to grapple with what it means to be a Protestant uh, within uh, their own uh, highly politicized uh, religiosity, which makes Protestantism and, and Britishness uh, almost indistinguishable. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Joe, for speaking to us today. Well, thank you, Hilary. I, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the interview.